Hi, I'm Chad. And I'm JP. This month, we sat down with Michael Smith, the director of the Master of Human-Computer Interaction and Design program at the University of Washington. Michael talked about how information architecture can serve as an entry point to a design career, the sad loss of studio culture, and teaching and practicing design research. Enjoy. This is Design School. Michael Smith, thank you for being here on This Design School. I'm really excited to have a great productive conversation with you. When we were thinking about season three, you were one of the first people that came to mind of somebody I thought would be interesting to talk to you that I knew from in the past. Oh, I'm very flattered. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think a good place to start would be um, hearing a little bit where you are now and kind of your journey to get here. Well, it's like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So let let us start with where I am today. Mm -hmm. So today... I am just a little under one year now as the director of the Masters in Human Computer Interaction and Design degree program at the University of Washington, Mm -hmm. which is an interdisciplinary um, technology and design program that's sponsored by the Paul Allen School of Computer Science, the Information School, the Human Centered Design and Engineering Department of the College of Engineering, and the Design Division of the College of Art, Art History, and Design. So we share faculty from a lot of different places, and our goal is to um, help educate um, a kind of technology-centered designer and design, design researchers and design technologists. So it's a pretty exciting and new and different place to be for me. I also sit on the faculty of the Division of Design for Interaction Design, and so there I teach design research mostly, although you know only once a year or so. Mm-hmm. And then the question of how I got to, came to be here is a little more complicated. Um, immediately prior to this, I was a principal interaction designer at Frog in uh, the Seattle studio. And there I had been working on, um, my specialization was in the design of large scale systems. So regularly clients would come to us and say, well, we need to develop this new product and it needs to have a number of different endpoints. And um, I would be a person they could call on to help kind of make sense of a lot of that and help kind of coordinate and design, especially around design language systems, UI toolkits, things like that, that could be spread across a lot of different things. So I'm very also technology oriented, right? Like my master's degree is in library and information science. Mm -hmm. Um, So I originally went to school to be an academic librarian and then like did not get a job in a library as many don't. And then, uh, and then since then, um, have kind of like slowly migrated into the world of design through the door of information architecture. Um, so that's kind of like how I, how I came to be in here and I could go into more into depth of how all of that happened. Um, but I was at frog for around five years and I worked on a lot of different projects, but, um, I was really focused on, like I did a long-term automotive project. Uh, I did, uh, several projects that were around kind of like point of sale stuff and then enterprise software, which is another thing that I did a lot of work in. I wanted to go back and go a little bit deeper into that transition from library science over mm. to design and that part a little bit more <laughs> yeah well most most people do um i usually get emails from people who are like in library school or i like how did you manage this because it's interesting mm-hmm. right and it's not it is certainly a field of expertise that i think many people trained in information science um could make the jump without mm-hmm. any difficulty especially because 
you're thinking about information, right? And like even in the act of creating works of design, right? You're still thinking about how can you take information and make it meaningful to people and or evocative or emotional or things like that. And so if library sciences is at some point about understanding why humans interact with information, which is really at its core what it's all about, mm -hmm. then how if and and I think interacting with information is not accidental, right? So now you have that like information side of things, interaction side of things leads to interaction design. And then the presentation of those things ends up being how you get into like the more traditional design backgrounds. And I think that's what happened to me is I came out of library school. I went to work at the US EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And I was doing mostly document indexing. So I would like take major government documents and I would write abstracts for them. And I started working on a project that had me trying to integrate the metadata structures that we created for those documents into this new record keeping system. And ultimately, as I went through it, I was like, but we can't just abstractly design these information structures without knowing who is going to be using them and for what purpose and to balance different kinds of stakeholders. There's like system level demands and there was like individual user demands and there was the public nature demand of all of this. And it just was like, we, I, I can't make these information structures without knowing the people. And I was initially frustrated with it. And then I left the EPA and went to work at a technology consulting company in Seattle that was doing some work um, around a, a, a large-scale taxonomy system for a big tech giant in the area. And taxonomy was one of those things. Taxonomy is, of course, like the, the organization of information you're trying to create, to like take a body of knowledge and create some schema for organizing it. And so again, it was the same thing. I was working on this system and I was like, this just doesn't, this isn't working for me, right? Like I can do it and I can describe it intellectually or within a particular discourse or within uh, like our mode of understanding of this body of knowledge, but without being connected to who's ultimately going to be using it, I couldn't quite make the leap. And so I was frustrated by it. And then one day, um, so that, I mean, that's still like I'm on the information side of things. And one day I end up getting invited to a usability study. And this is how it all started. I'm taking notes. Now, here's the thing is that actually all of this began a lot vastly before. Um, back in the early HTML days, right around Netscape, right? So that must have been, what, 1995, 1996 time period, right? right late in year. I learned HTML and started doing web design. Web design, right? I was a webmaster for my own personal thing, right? Well, I remember those days well. Exactly. Um, and so it's like kind of like you know you're going and you're looking up the HP, HTML spec, right? You're looking at the documentation for Netflix Navigator, right? And so it, like this is my first introduction, and then I did grab, and then it turns out, and I had forgotten this up until like maybe four or five years ago that I actually did all of the graphic design and layout for my high school yearbook. Now I don't even know how I forgot I did that. Mostly just because I was like, you know, the only thing I did in high school was like listen to heavy metal and play Doom. So like all these things that like kind of came together and I was starting to see was like, oh wait, like I actually know a little something about like why I think things like should be arranged aesthetically, right? And then I saw this usability test and was like, oh man, this is it, right? I'm starting to see like how information architecture, which I studied in graduate school, right? Like plays into all of this. I can see people using it in this way and I can break the bridge between the taxonomic organization of information and information architecture. And so then I got into an information architect role within the same company. So I kind of moved laterally from taxonomist to information architect. And then I got thrust into like, all right, well, we got to make, we got to make websites. And I made websites, a lot of them. 
regularly, often with way too little time. And then I, you know, I started doing things, you know, you're making wireframes, you're thinking about interactivity, you're mostly doing flows and sitemaps, you're like very deliverable focused, right? It's like, we got to crank this stuff out. I was working at e-commerce sites. It was all like optimizing and usability. Like, how can we get somebody to buy this thing a little better? So they, so now I, I have this like accumulated body of knowledge, right? Like all of this little interest and like web design that started off, you know, when I was just a wee teenager, then graduate school, information architecture usability, right? Like doing research, like field research in some ways, or in this case, lab research. And then I'm now making websites. Somehow along the way, I tricked some hiring committee at Frog to hire me. And I think it, it, I, <laughs> well, what, what do you mean tricked? I mean, you had to get into the door somehow. I, I, and so I did, I got referred by somebody who left the company I was working at, went there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I earnestly, I knew a fair amount about UX in the sense of what user experience was at the time, yeah. but mostly in the implementation side of things. I would say that I was very immature. I was a fairly good consultant because I'm a pretty good talker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, like, I knew how to build convincing arguments for why we were doing things the way we were. But really earnestly, I didn't know a ton about design, like big D or little d design. Um, and that's when, and that's, that's how I got to today, is that I went to Frog had a really great interview with some very, very great people. And they were like, yeah, you should come and join the team. I was like, okay, we're going to do this. I'm going to go and scared out of my mind in some ways. Cause I'm like, this is like one of the, you know, the big, you know, product studios. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, went there and within the first week had one of those hard conversations with somebody looking across the table being like, you need to do better. They were saying that to you. Yeah. Hmm. They're like, you know, and part of that is like, we have high expectations of you, but you need to have higher expectations of yourself. Not only in terms of, cause like a lot of times in UX at the time, it was like, you know, you don't, you, you, you move fast, take chances, right? Like you're, you're all about at the time it was like very rapid and iterative and Frog is a very formal place, right? It was one of those things where UX was like, sure, you can kind of make it look good, but visual design was like down the cascade. It was after a lot of the like main product thinking had already been done. And Frog was very much like super integrated, right? Tech, interaction design, visual design, like all on the same team, very tightly coupled with, with business strategy people and with design researchers. And so it was like, oh boy, like everything all of the time. Mm-hmm. And then like every single person in the chain had some expectation of formal excellence, which for me, I didn't have. Cause I never had a studio that I worked in. I often worked alone in my other places where it was kind of like, you have your own thing. I mean, that wasn't always the case, but like everybody had their own thing they had to do. And you often weren't working on the same thing at the same time. Could you say that you were, uh, you knew enough to be dangerous? No, I would don't think I was quite dangerous. That's the problem is that I, I am now because five years at frog made it. So, right. Oh, okay. Um, where, where, um, I went out of my way to learn an awful lot about the, th- the gaps that I quickly identified as a result of that. You know, my understanding of design research was usability, right? Oh, we need to like make a prototype and test it. And, you know, a mature organization like Frog, especially in the design point of view, was very much like we have a lot of different ways of using design research, right? Like there's many different forms of it and there's a lot of things that we can learn besides whether or not the product works or not. In fact, that's kind of like, not even the most interesting form of design research. Um, and so we got to do like design ethnography, like that's exciting. 
not many organizations ever get a chance to do that. Like we got to go out on the field and just observe people and try to figure out like what would be good for them or how would, how could we make this product relevant for their lives? And that's great. And I, I, and I learned a lot, right? And I learned how to be a better interaction designer um, by, by a large amount um, and in the most broadest sense of that term. And it wasn't just like, oh, how can we better make like, you know, widgets fit together a little better or help people use products that are like that have some sort of glowing rectangular buttons on them. Mostly it was the very broad idea of like just what constitutes interaction design at the broad level, right? The, you know, the perception action lifecycle, like how can you change someone's environment and hope that to find a way to influence them to act in a particular way and then see the environment changed as a result of that. Uh, that's really uh, like being able to have an environment that believes that the, the, the most broadest sense of interaction design helped me identify like, what could I do? How could I use this uh, in, a, in a new and interesting way? And I still like making products. Like I like designing apps. It's kind of fun, but it's not hard anymore. But it can't be. It can't be. What about um, the location that we're currently in is one, one of those classroom spaces, studio spaces mm -hmm. um, here on the UW campus. Can you talk about perhaps how your experience at frog has helped translate or um, meld into the classroom environment that's a great point and so now as you know in my instructor role I'm very much trying to simulate or to create one of those working out loud environments that frog was like you know we had a strong pinup culture in that place end of every day put your work up on the wall right or the beginning of every day show where you're at get critique, give critique, right? Give updates, you know, be working out loud as much as possible. Um, you know, some people call it collaboration, and it can be collaborative, um, but oftentimes it's just trying to be like, here's how we're all working towards the same goal and we see it. And so I'm trying very hard to get to that environment here while still achieving our like educational out, uh, outcome desires. So it's like, how can we create a place that is not only about the work, but also about the process? And, um, and it has to be about the work too. It's one of those things that I see emerging in design education is that sometimes there is a strong emphasis placed on the process and a little more forgiveness put towards outcomes. And, um, I, I strongly believe now because of the environment that I was in that frog, right? That formal excellence is, um, necessary. I mean, it's the thing, right? Like, um, you go back to the Eames quote about ideas are cheap, right? They are. Lots of people have ideas. Many people have ideas, but what distinguishes design and designers is the ability to execute on those ideas and to like hone in on uh, the formal aspect of the things that you're creating. So we're trying to emphasize that. And so like, if you walk around our studio, like at the, at the end of every studio session, everybody's work for the week is up on the wall. And they can have conversations about it. They can see how other teams are doing, they can see what other people are working on, and they externalize their process in some way to learn from each other. But also it helps elevate the level of formal excellence by seeing where each of the teams are at. So it's definitely an environment that I'm trying to cultivate. And, you know, we're here on a Sunday morning. It's, what, quarter to 11 maybe at this point? I can hear in the studio right now at least two student teams here working which, you know, is not unusual for graduate school, but at the same time, right, we've been instilled in them the idea that the studio is the place where work happens. Um, and you can go and work in a coffee shop if you want, but the studio has everything you need and will, and the, the very environment itself will help you do great design work. 
And then, you know, it's a trend I think I'm, I'm seeing as I think that the studio model is going away in industry. Um, there are still beginning to be some, some small places that do it. And I think it's a, it's a net loss for the discipline and the kind of the way that we approach problems. I think the studio is a thing that like is a really important way to be immersive and to like um, help people grow together and to like for us to like continue to push the discipline and the outcomes forward even more in the future. So I'll be sad to see it go. What do you think the drivers behind the loss of studio is? Um, it's, I, as far as I can tell, it's the need and it's actually really tightly coupled to the desire and need for more designers in the world mm-hmm. and for, cause a lot of people recognize there was the, you know, the tech boom that started in 2007 with the iPhone came about in part because of like their Apple's commitment in one way or another to like the design of the, the, the product itself. And that included the software and the hardware and the way people used it. It was like the whole encompassing thing. And so I think that what it created was like, and it was such a, I mean, no doubt the iPhone changed the world in a really significant way. Um, And so I think a lot of the people in business see that and go like design is important. And that's why we see an increase in the salaries of designers and the demand for designers in not only in tech, but in all sorts of different businesses. And as that demand goes up, we also need them in more, um, distributed cases. So it's like, it's not enough to have a design team sequestered away in their own little studio that you can call on to work on something. But what we need is somebody that can be down in the details on the team level, working with a bunch of other people. And so as a result, they increasingly get isolated, right? They're like, we need you over here. We need you working on our thing. And in technology, that's one thing. And in businesses, there are other things that kind of go to that, but it's like, we're like, we need to protect you all to ourselves. And so it's very like we're pulling that one person aside. And then as they do that, they're working with other people that can help them grow and develop an interesting thinking group, right? Somebody that's like has a good attitude towards problem solving. But at the same time, what you don't get is that like commitment to the like the process and excellence aspect of it, right? There's no other designer to be like, you need to put more time into this. Like you didn't do enough here. You got lazy. Right, like that's the kind of critique that people need to hear sometimes. The the competitiveness, a little bit, yeah. Um, I guess so. I I don't I, I'm not a competitive person, and so as a result, like I feel like it's just like we need to have higher ideals, right? I like to think of it as kind of like the, the the West Wing problem, right? Which is like the West Wing as a TV show was one of those things, which was like it was the high ideal, whether or not you agreed with its politics, which is kind of like everybody in the White House was all trying to do the right thing for the reasons that they thought was best. So in some of the ways, I think the studio process is about that. It's like, we're going to put people that think like that have a same motivational point of view. They aspire to the same sort of excellence together. And when that happens, then they can be like, it's not even about like, you need to do better because I'm doing better, but rather we all should hold ourselves to higher standards, which I really appreciate. Right. Like I I like that that idea. Aspirational aspect of the studio is that like, we all like, we are part of something bigger than ourselves and we're trying to do something meaningful even if it is like making an app for helping people walk dogs. And I mean, do you, sure. Do you feel that, that your program is doing that? You know, I can't say what people are not finding outside of the studio. Again, I see it as a, I'm, I'm trying my best to do that in our place. I don't know how well I'm succeeding at. Again, this is only my first year. Mm-hmm. So I like to see the outcomes that I have from the studio process and the, from the, the, 
the things that we assign in projects and things like that. Like, like I feel like I'm getting to a point where I'm satisfied, but I also like I'm trying at all times to engage people from the outside. We bring people in from industry to do critiques regularly. Um, they, um, they work with an advisor and their capstone projects from, from industry. And so we're trying to like, find additional vectors for elevating the standards just behind besides the teaching teams that we have. Um, so I hope so. And then when, you know, what happens in industry, I, I, I can only speak from my own experience and I know that people go in like, especially when they go into tech companies often get slotted onto development teams or things like that. And they're working by themselves on, you know, this like narrow little slice and they get one hour of critique a, a week from their manager and that's basically it. And, that can work and lots of places do make it work. But I, I'm, you know, I'm one of those people that's kind of like, again, I want to be more aspirational. It would be greater if we could have more than this. Oh yeah. So yeah. I, I don't know, maybe someday we'll, we'll get back to it. But the other thing too is my hope is that, you know, I tell all of my students this, which is like, we believe in studios, studios can do right work. And I try to demonstrate to them so that when they go off in industry after a few years and they get into leadership positions and they're organizing their own teams, they begin to think like, oh yeah, the studio model, this would be really cool. And then they, we start to like regrow it organically. I think that is, uh, a pipe dream maybe, but I'm going for it. I'm going for it. I mean, as you were talking and listening, it was bringing up, um, this idea that I was quite interested in when I was in grad school, which is the increasing role of designer as facilitator. Oh yeah. So like, you know, you're talking about being sequestered off and yeah, you have that role, but you're also usually, um, being called upon to kind of almost guide or lead a process in a different way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm curious to see, I mean, there's obviously the studio model, but then everybody at some point is probably going to get pulled away or come back in to some degree. It, it, how is that a part of the ideology here? Anything that you push is the idea of facilitation in a process as well as participating in that. You know, the way that you've, um, the way that you mentioned, I think so is that, um, and it's something that I would like to work on. One of the things mm -hmm. I would really like to see come out of MHCID in particular is this, this idea that we're not only um, educating people to be great designers, but also design leaders. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's part of it, right? Like we can come out and you know something about, you know, what different tools, techniques, and processes make design powerful in different kinds of contexts. But then also at the same time, can you articulate that power and help other people through it and to know their boundaries, right? And that's the important part about design as facilitator is that there's this ongoing meme and it's actually, I love this. And you know, Bill Buxton's book, Sketching User Experiences, he has this big page, which was like, no, not everybody is a designer, which I, I actually strongly believe, right? It's the same thing. There was this meme that's out there that's like, oh, well, everybody can be a designer. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, probably. You can certainly learn a few of those techniques, but at the same time, like everybody has some limit either in their own comfort, their capacity or willingness to engage in it. And so as a result, it's better to think about how design is facilitation. And this is actually a new, like it's an interesting framing. I talk about facilitating things all the time. I just doing a lot of workshops and, mm -hmm. you know, but it, uh, design is like designer as facilitator as well as like, that's an interesting idea that I think I need to like dive into a little deeper. And I think that may be a really succinct way of putting this idea that like you are trying to organize people around um, the core ideas of the ways of doing design, but also recognizing that not everybody wants to do it. So mm -hmm. you're trying to like 
guide and shepherd them through this thing without what, what being able to draw on their expertise without expecting them to do things that they shouldn't be expected to do. Right. Like no one's going to say like, you can figure out how to fix your car. I'll show you and then expect me to actually go and fix the car. Yeah. Is that something you ran into as a principal at Frog at all? Having, I mean, I'm guessing there was some level of client engagement in the process. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, in constantly. Yeah. And so, and, and that's kind of where, okay, you have like your team of experts, but then you also have the people that are kind of coming to participate in this process or, you know, in some way. Um, I don't know if that translates in experience at all in that way. It does. And, and it's a great, I mean, I, I miss a lot of that level of facilitation. I had done a lot of it because there's actually this interesting piece where there's like, you know, frog, one of the things was like, you would sell design research and workshops and they were all like, they were all interrelated. Right. Which was like, if you're going to draw people into this process, you know, we can go out in the field and do design research, learn something about the participants and the people that we're trying to reach you know, for whatever the project happened to be, and then coming back and engaging stakeholders and trying to orient them to that, those insights and to like those like empathetic artifacts and like, and then also getting them to like also be a part of this process and getting them comfortable with abduction. Right. Because one of the things too, it's challenging is you go and talk about design research and they're like, well, what did you observe? And I'm like, that's, not the point of design research. I mean, it is to, to some degree, but it's also about engaging everybody and creating synthesis of like our personal knowledge and our organizational knowledge and the knowledge of the participants that we're working in with and building into like new insights into a problem space. And that makes people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so you, if you don't know how to do that, if you can't be that facilitator, it doesn't seem like you'll be successful doing the the high level strategic design work that is increasingly becoming more valuable to organizations and industry. Mm -hmm. Did I answer the question? Yeah. Well, okay. and, and that's a hard thing to learn. I mean, that, I remember that was, Oh yeah. That's something I always struggle with in that process. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes the first thing you have to recognize is that, um, that doing design research and presenting your work and arguing for it, those are those two, those things that you learn that can hone your personal craft, but that are easy to translate out, right? Once you get comfortable working with DR participants, all of a sudden working with stakeholders is just another flavor of that. Mm -hmm. And so you go into it, not with that like nervous anticipation of being evaluated, but rather the, um, the, like you seek to build rapport, you seek to learn and hear them, you listen, right? You pay attention to what's going on. And so as a result, then you emerge from this being like, oh, look, those things that I learned how to make my craft better also help me be like a better practitioner in the more broad sense. And so those things, and then, you know, getting up and like, I mean, doing critique also helps you be a better facilitator because in the same way, you have to listen to what other people are saying. You have to quickly understand what your goals are in their critique. Like when you pin up work, like what are you looking to get from it? So, I mean, I think, I think there, it's one of the reasons again, why I'm usually just so genuinely excited about design education in the broad sense. And why I'm doing this now is because like, I learned all those things kind of slowly over time and started to piece them together. And then when I started to teach them, it started to cohere into some like the, like a, a very clear point of view on how you can make all of this happen. Mm -hmm. Um, and, I had a colleague that was like some aspect of design is sales, which is true, right? You like, but design is also rhetoric. This is another one of my colleagues, Andy Fitzgerald talked about this, where it's like the like design is rhetoric because at some point what you're trying to do is you're building an argument for a future. 
I like to say that design is also hostage negotiation. <laughs> Tell me more about that. So you, um, in a critique to a client, you are trying to convince them that you have the best interest in mind and that you are trying to get them to agree to your decisions. Uh. But sometimes they have their own agenda in mind and want something out of it. And so you have to uh, not agree to anything except to get something out of it. Ah, oh, I see. Yes. Okay. We're the, like, we promise there's going to be an outcome. We don't know what our degree of comfort with the exactly. outcome is going to be yeah. across the board from any of the parties. I like the idea that the thing that's being held hostage ultimately is the product itself, yeah. whatever, it, or the outcome, whatever it is that you're making. Yeah. Right? yeah. I don't mean to say I'm, I'm oriented more towards product design because that's what I've been doing for now six or seven years. Yeah. But, but any sort of, bigger than that. Yeah. But any sort of design is really, there is a product, there is a client, there is a, uh, an end user of some sort. Yeah. 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 So I wanted to go back to that idea of, uh, learning through giving critique uh-huh. um, because uh, you also were a uh, adjunct. You, you taught adjunct both uh, at UW and SBC, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. During your time at Frog, how did that participate? How did that push your own learning as a practitioner? Well, so one of the things that's interesting is that um, it, uh, you know, as a practitioner, you end up developing a set of processes and things that you do that are part of your personal style. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it may not be conscious. That's one of those things is that you like develop these things that are either like it's comfortable to me. Um, there are things that you do because they help you understand they, they help you through the sense making process of design and, and beyond that, right. There's, you develop crutches, right? Like, oh, I can take the shortcut or things like that. And the thing about teaching, when I started at UW, I I remember quite clearly how it all happened. I came to a critique that was um, UW Interaction Design Students Portfolios. And I was looking at it, and I went into it, and Tad Hirsch invited me to come in and, and do these critiques. And well, then I sat down with a lot of people's portfolios, and Afterwards, he's like, so what do you, you know, what was your impressions overall? And I was like, oh, it's like a good formal craft skills, some decent design thinking, but there's some big gaps that I think kind of get in the way from them, like being able to immediately slot into kind of the the roles that we're looking for. And he's like, okay, what do you think those are? And I kind of told him, I was like, you know, we don't, you don't talk much about information architecture. It doesn't seem that they can think in that like decompositional side of, of things. Like how do you, and that's like synthesis is about making new sense of things, but there's also some aspect of like breaking things down and helping to make sense of it that way. And so he was like, okay, cool. Thanks for volunteering. And I was like, okay, sure. Uh, and then like four months later, he's like, so you're on the teaching calendar for fall. You know, you know, I mean, it, like, Sounds like Chad, you know him exactly right. And so, so I was like, okay, he's like, and you know, it's like, if you want, if you want this class, like you come in and teach it. And then what that did, and this is a long way of telling the same story is it forced me to go through and think about my own process and the way that I do things and decompose it in much the same way. So what was I doing? How is it valuable? What were the gaps and what were the shortcuts? And so the very act of writing a syllabus and trying to figure out how are you going to teach this topic and what way will you teach the topic mm-hmm. helped me understand myself better. And so it was a reflective thing. It was a critique of not only the work that I was doing, but the way I worked. And it was like a process and methodological way of doing it. And then, right, you do that where you're like, oh, okay, well, I have some gaps. I need to fill those in. And then, and because I would like, if I would expect this of someone else, I need to know what it is. And then I was like, okay, how am I going to do the research to fill this gap? So how am I going to teach myself how to teach this? Mm-hmm. And then the best part about it is, is then you go in and teach the class 
and then you see this process manifest itself through the students doing the work, right? So they start to achieve the outcomes that I would expect them to achieve through this process. And then I was like, oh, it's in some way a validation, right? It's a test. Um, and so uh, you get to see like, okay, now I understand not only my own process better by going through and decomposing it in such a way to better understand it and teach it, but also I can see in what ways even that understanding was not complete because these fresh new minds who are hungry to do great work don't have the whole picture and what they struggle with. Um, and then, uh, but then at the same time, like how you can help them work through that, through the critique process and through explanation and personal work and feedback until they get to a great outcome as a result. And so that was like, that, that, that little bit of teaching was really important and catalyzing for me. It also, it showed me like, so here's some more, here's some holes you need to fill in. Um, and in much the same way, right? Like the design research that I had been doing at Frog, I was like pretty rough at it. You know, I didn't, um, I knew how to do a good interview. I knew kind of how to plan things, but I didn't know how to like guide a team through it. Mm -hmm. Um, I needed somebody to be like, here's great. Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to work and like figure out who these participants are going to be. Let's go make it happen. And then once I started teaching design research, then all of that clarified for me. I understood the theoretical underpinnings, but I had had some, you know, like as part of library school, you learn how to do qualitative research. And so then that all got resurrected. And the nice thing is I teach that class through this book that I was assigned in graduate school, right? Like Robson's Real World Research, which is just like this really nice, concise, like here's how to do qualitative research. And then what I do is I assign that and then I match it to to design research methods. So it's like, okay, you have to, you can't escape here without knowing observation and without knowing how to do interviews because every other method in design research is kind of dependent on knowing those two skills. So it kind of goes from there. I think that teaching helped, like, because I didn't have a formal design education, it helped me better understand what design was mm -hmm. in the more kind of like formal sense. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm starting to ramble now. No, no like, not at all. Okay. I, I find that very fascinating <laughs> as I think of my own, um, design teaching. Yeah. I'm thinking like, Oh man, I, I need to, I got to push that even further. Uh, my 300 level class is about design research and mm -hmm. I, I would love to get it down to a 200 level to get it earlier. So that way at the 300 level they're they're doing it. They're not just getting uh, their flavor for it. They, right. they've, they've already consumed it and, and they're hungry for it at that point. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, like, just as my way of thinking about this is that I think there's different ways of, of like, flipping the rigor switch on design research, right? So what I really like to do is, um, and I know that there's probably some people who would strongly disagree with me on this one, which is like, no, no, you, you have to start very rigorous and then teach them to back off, right? It's the, like, you know, the great jazz musicians didn't just break the rules, they knew the rules and then learned where to break them. And I'm like, that's fine, but I also have to trust that people are interesting are interested in developing their own set of skills. So it's kind of like, okay, so here's why we, how you can use observation, just base level, go out, pay attention to people. And then you, know, the, you could do that with sophomores, 200 level people, right? Then at 300 level, it's like, okay, well now let's talk about some structures of how to do this, right? What are different modes of doing observation? Um, and then, you know, as you go along, right, you can up the level of rigor associated with that. So it's kind of like you can learn the technique and you can begin to use it in a, in a way that doesn't 
do active harm to, I mean, it's mostly it's kind of like, how am I informing my design decision making to how am I then actually being able to make claims about the people that we're working with to finally the highest level of rigor is how can we actually say like, here's what we know to be the truth about a particular group of people. Right. And that's 200, 300, 400 right there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, I mean, that those are those kind of exciting things that you can do, which is like, I, I'm excited. I think I'm going to be doing some, a bit of research next, next quarter. Um, and I like, I've never gone through the IRB process at UW because I've never had to. I've never had to get like my, my research plans reviewed. Um, and so now I have to think about this in a whole new level of rigor for myself, which is like, how will I be able to ensure that I'm communicating adequately the goals and kind of participants of my research um, in order to ensure that like, if I want to have it published and validated in that way, like I can do so. Yeah. The design world has changed a lot in the last 10 years. Yeah. That's a, not a novel statement. Now that you're in a university setting, leading a program, curious about how you balance, um, while creating a curriculum, the the need to teach relevant skills that are relevant for today's demand, mm -hmm. versus also preparing these students to change with the field as time passes. Ah. Uh. That's an interesting question. Um, and my general feeling is is that there are, um, I, I myself have a very theoretical minded point of view, mm -hmm. and so you know I think there's a few different like layers to all of this, right? Like being able to address the base level theory, right? Like where to, where has the discourse um, in the discipline led us to at this point? Um, and do we as a group, right? As a you know as a as a practicing field then also recognize where those things have come from and where they're leading us right like there is the sign of body of thought that we can draw from and a bunch of experiences and practices um and a lot of those right like haven't changed very much i mean the newest kind of du jour thing is prototype and test right which is like haha yes um and uh sure okay i mean and i know it's a it's it's you know, there's a lot of books written about this and, you know, like that's an entire mode of operating that some kind of like some parts of the world are very excited about. And, you know, I don't know if you saw like Alan Cooper's like big, uh, like ranty tweet storm about it. Um, he basically got online and was like prototype and test isn't, isn't human centered design. He's like, I don't know what it is. It's maybe design, but like, it's certainly not human centered. Right. And I can't really tell if that's like where, where he's coming from, you know, is it, because some people would say, well, you're testing with people, right? Like, isn't that the core idea is that like that users or the people that you're involved with have some say into the things that they, that you're creating. And then, and so I look at that, that kind of point of view, which is that we, we can certainly teach and respect that in some way, but part of it is about building the curiosity about why we do things. So that's the way that you get people to continuously change and to be thinking and progressing, right? And that maybe that's the best part about it is that like to be a progressive designer means also to know not only where we came from, but what might work in the future and thinking about the future in a, in a, in a critical way, um, not only in the practice, but also in the, the work that we do. Um, uh huh. Uh huh. Right. Oh, exactly. Yeah, and I, and yeah. I, and, it, and it, it, I dwell on it constantly. Um, cause it's true, right? It, it's absolutely true. We, you know, um, but you know, when the studios we're looking at that, which is like, okay, we can do some things like what is sketching? What is, you know, you know, doing things and like not 
uh, and, and systems for analysis and and um, you know individual prototyping techniques, right? So when you know what is the like if you start with a paper prototype, right? In the same way, right? Like if you start with observation in the research course, right? What you're building there is a really flexible tool that has never gotten old, right? That's been around since like scientific inquiry, right? Oh, I mean, it's, it's as old as anything, right? Mm -hmm. So observation as a structured technique can be applied to so many different things. And so when a new technique comes out and you can see and translate and understand how observation plays a part of that, right? Then, then it becomes easy for you to try to try something new. And then in the same way, right? When you think about like craft in design, there are, you have to learn how to sketch well because without knowing how to sketch, you can't kind of go through and think about the leveling, the various degrees of fidelity required in order to communicate a design idea. And the same thing with prototyping. And this is a really important part of our program, right? You start with making paper prototypes because paper prototypes are fast. They're easy to understand. They're very flexible and powerful. They can be used to solve a number of different design kind of like challenges in different ways. And then you can use that thinking, the way of thinking about problem solving using prototypes to then extend into all sorts of different prototypes, video prototypes, behavioral prototypes, look at like physical computing and kind of making, you know, large scale things that could be miniaturized in the future, right? Like all of those things require the same fundamental theory to kind of base it off of. So we really put the emphasis on that and then allow students to explore different techniques or skills through the studios and then they can use them interchangeably or at their at their desire so that um, we still can go take those techniques and ladder them back up to the theory that underlies them and then you know in our lecture series then we get really theoretical that's my favorite part about it so well, I'm, I'm getting there I think so yeah, yeah I was okay. just gonna say we're, we're reaching our our uh, time with you um, do you have any last-minute questions that you want I've got all my big ones covered how about you I was just going to ask you a, uh, I guess, a design tip for the um, design students out there. What should they be reading? What? Oh, what the should what they should be reading? Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so Actually, let me, let me rephrase that. What should they be reading or listening to or looking at? Or because design education isn't just about reading; it's about experiences. Yeah. Um, so like, okay, so let's start with a basic movie. Everybody has to watch Hodorowski's Dune. You guys watch this? No. Okay, well now you both have homework. Right. Um, like so it. it's a documentary about Alejandro Hodorowski, he's a, a, a Spanish filmmaker. And, uh, but Hodorowski made a bunch of really crazy psychedelic movies in the seventies, like El Topo and, and The Holy Mountain. And, um, you know, very much like uh, avant-garde filmmaking even for that period. But at some point, he was signed up to make Dune before David Lynch did. And um, this movie is him recounting the story of how he didn't come to make Dune and what he did along the way. And it is um, the perfect example of the genius madman designer in some way, right? Trying to coordinate all of these things and to realize some vision. Um, so that, at the very least, is a thing which is like, it's about first learning how to deal with difficult people uh, but also about being committed to um, an idea so wholly. So that is definitely like, awesome. you should watch yes. that. And then like there um, is, um, so the other thing, I, I'm, I'm really interested in, in design fictions, design futures. And, uh, and so people have been asking like, what science fiction do you want to read, right? And so then I have my, like, my two big fiction books I think everybody needs to check out, right? You have to read Ursula Le Guin. You read The Dispossessed. 
And, uh, and that isn't so much about like a design idea, but you know, my reason why Ursula Guin is so important to me is that she really was the first science fiction writer that I had read that proposed a future that was humane in some way that actually represented what I, what, what, what seemed to be an actual course of humanity in the broad scale, which was that it is realistic, but also that it doesn't have to be either, um, kind of like blindly utopian, like Asimov or like bleakly depressive, like Philip Dick. Um, so, you know, she is, uh, uh, you know, of that same era, but actually has some, a point of view that says that like humanity is valuable in some way. Um, and then um, the contrast to that, of course, is William Gibson, right? And I'm sure everybody will be like, read Neuromancer. Don't read Neuromancer. Read Virtual Light. Um, if you want a bleak understanding of San Francisco in to like basically in the very near future, that's the book to read. Okay. And then I have one final book recommendation. Listening to, I don't know, like listen to more heavy metal. I, that's all I, that's all I say. <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, uh, the, uh, the other book, right? Like the, the actual design book that people, if they haven't read, I keep asking people like, has everybody read Alexander's notes on the synthesis of form? You should read notes on the synthesis of form. Um, it's a short text, but, um, and it's. Uh, it's kind of based from an architecture point of view, but I think that everybody who reads it has a new and, and different understanding of the role of like making things or like the built, like the expressing themselves through creation in the world. Um, and it's a great text. So I'll close with that one notes on the synthesis of form. Nice. Well, thank you very much for your time and uh, great space that you have here and, and hearing the students and seeing all the stuff on the walls and, and the conversation. I, I feel very inspired. Oh, great. Thank I you so I'm much. I pass it on to the students. So thank you. All right. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks. This is Design School is recorded in a field where design happens. The intro music for This is Design School is Electronic Nostalgic, composed by Paul Tyne and published under the Creative Commons on SoundCloud. Continue the conversation by contacting us on Twitter. JP tweets at JP Avila. And Chad tweets at Chad P. Hall. You can follow the show at TIDS Podcast. Get more info on the podcast and subscribe to our newsletter by visiting us at thisisdesign.school. Help spread the word by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Music, and Stitcher. And share us with your designer friends. Bye for now.